You are listening to NTC Messina's podcast, where our desire as the family of God is to simply know God, love one another, and make disciples. We're still in our Revelation series. Um, if you are joining us maybe newer this morning, we've been kind of doing a series from Genesis to Revelation, calling it Garden to City. Um, so there's a lot in front of this, but we're going to pick up in chapters 7 through 10-ish today uh, in Revelation. And we're obviously not going to read all of it. We're going to read some of it together, but we're not going to read all of it. And there's a lot of stuff. So um, if anybody's read the book of Revelation, I've made you know kind of statements about this before. Obviously, it's a book that it can be very confusing, but it's highly symbolistic. It, it's not all literal. At least that is my belief, and that's what I'm going to preach from. Um, it is not all just uh, this literal idea of what's going to take place. There's so much symbolism that happens here. And in my first message on Revelation, I really talked about the reality that those who would have been hearing this letter, because this was a letter written to the churches by John at the time that he did it, those who would have been hearing it in that day, uh, probably between 70 and 90 A.D., they would have been hearing it in a language they understood, in symbolism they understood. So here we are hearing many, many years later, and it's definitely a little bit more mysterious to us. And so especially as we get into these chapters, it began in 4, 5, and 6, and as we travel through, honestly, a lot of the rest of the book, there's a ton of symbolism that can get weird, really, quite weird. And I just want to say this, as we, we're doing kind of an a brief overview. Don't get stuck in all the symbolism that you might not understand. Um, people have mused about it for 2,000 years and are still musing about what it might mean and, and the symbols, what they might actually be. Um, but just want you to know, don't get stuck in that. So as we read today, I'm not going to hit literally every symbol because it, you could spend eternity on it. All right. So here we are. Let's pick up in chapter 7 and uh, we're just going to kind of break down through some of the chapters, parts of it. We'll read parts of it and, and kind of get to my main theme uh, today. All right, so verse 1 of chapter 7, we see, you, you've seen in, in chapters 4, 5, and 6, these seals. And you see these angels opening these seals, and you get to these points where, you know, the last one is what's left, the seventh seal. Just as you know, if you've read through any of it now, you're going to see tons of numbers, right? Seven, and there's lots of repeating numbers. Seven is one of them. Twelve is another one. Three or thirds is another one. And you see these all throughout Scripture. And what's interesting, the Bible, and especially even in the Hebrew uh, tradition, in the Jewish tradition, numbers meant a lot to people. So sometimes actually in the Bible, in the Old Testament, you'll read numbers, and they weren't the actual numbers. They just fudged them to make them more symbolistic. Because you'll see the same story even repeated at different times in the Old Testament, and they give you different numbers. And it's because they're trying to make a point through the number. It's not really just about the number. So this first chapter that we're going to talk about today in 7, and honestly, if you get into discussions with people about eschatology or the end times or the, the, you know, the end type you know, thinking, they get to this part about 144,000. And you'll see that there's this moment in chapter 7 where there's a reprieve from what's happening in 4, 5, and 6. You see all this, you know, honestly terrible stuff be, really begin to play out. And then we get to chapter 7, 
And we're going to read kind of these first few verses. So let's pick up there. I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds, so they did not blow on the earth or the sea or even on any tree. And I saw another angel coming up from the east, carrying the seal of the living God. And he shouted to those four angels who had been given power to harm land and sea, Wait, don't harm the land or the sea or the trees until we have placed the seal of God on the foreheads of his servants. And I heard how many were marked with the seal of God. 144,000 were sealed from the tribes of Israel. And then it just breaks it down. It's 12,000 from each tribe, okay? So there's tons of symbolism happening here. There's tons of stuff kind of already being spoken in this language that to us would be a little bit, you know, weird or mysterious, but would make sense to some other people. But the main point here is that in the midst of these seals being opened and all this stuff kind of taking place on the earth that we started to see in chapters 4, 5, and 6, and that we're going to see in, in further chapters, you see this moment where this angel or this messenger comes and says, wait, we've got to put the seal of God on his servants. And what's interesting here, and especially the readers of, the, of that day, and honestly even us, if you've been in church a while, this should be kind of a, a reminder of a different story. Can anybody guess the story? You're such good Bible scholars. Anybody? The Passover. It's exactly what it should have reminded them of. Does anybody know what the Passover is? We know, we remember, we go back to ancient Egypt. The people of God are in captivity. They're slaves. And we see this moment where Moses is trying to get the people of God released. And God releases or allows these plagues to come. And the last one is this horrific plague where all the firstborn of everything die. And the only way they're saved is because there's a mark, there's a seal on their doorposts. And this is kind of a reminiscent language of that same moment. And there's this seal that comes on these people of God. And then it it gives you these 12 tribes and 12,000 each. Now what's interesting, if you try to match up these tribes with the 12 tribes of Israel, you're going to find out they're not accurate. If you go back to the 12 tribes of Israel, they've changed some. In fact, they got rid of one. The tribe of Dan isn't mentioned in here. And then they add a different one that wasn't there before, Manasseh, which is just one of Joseph's children's. And so there's this kind of weird situation taking place. It doesn't really make sense in just the logic of lining up tribe with tribe. But what we see here, and this is this is the idea, because some people get really stuck on this, and they think that this might literally mean Jews from today's world, or maybe that there's only 144,000 people that are going to be saved out of the whole world of all time. But I just want to say that's not the case. The idea of this, 12 is this, this number of completion, okay? And so you've got 12 tribes and 12,000 each. What it means is that, and because we're going to read another scripture right after this, is that somehow the word of God, the story of the gospel, has reached every tribe that exists, and that there's a completion that has taken place within those people groups. Something has happened where those who need to be reached, or those who have the chance to be reached, are reached. And we see this back in Scripture. We, we see that Jesus says that he won't come back until what? Every tribe and tongue has heard the name of Jesus. 
And this is kind of a, a reminiscent back to that to say, listen, I'm, I'm going to come and put my seal on people, meaning that these people are those who are the servants of God. And it's not about this number 144,000, because we'll get down just one more scripture. It says this in verse 9. After this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count. So they were able to count 144,000, but not this crowd. From every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne before the Lamb, they were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands, and they were shouting with a mighty shout, Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. So one main point I just want to pull out of this is that God is reaching for everyone. There's not some designed specific amount of people who get to be saved. There's not just a certain elect group, even though that's a word that we see in the Bible, that is going to follow God, and then there's all those who are just like, eh, too bad for you. But yet God is reaching for every tribe and nation and language. He's reaching for all people. And there is a moment when there's kind of a completion of that. That's what we see in these numbers, a completion of God's word or God's goodness going throughout the earth. And everyone, in a sense, has this chance to respond to him. And there's a completion of that moment, and that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing God's heart reaching everybody. And then what's really encouraging to me, it's a vast crowd too far to count. A vast crowd, too far to count, is the ones who's worshiping God. Now, I would imagine that crowd to be people who have called themselves servants of God or followers of Jesus from the beginning till the end. It's not just those that are there now. But from the beginning to the end, people who have, who have given their life to God. And what's interesting is this chapter is stuck right in the midst of an incredible amount of turmoil, persecution, and just plain old ugly stuff. Yet we're, we're being reminded that there's people of God everywhere. And that God actually has sealed them, that he's, he's covered them. That word sealed, it, it kind of has a picture of a tent. It's like, oh, I've put something over them to keep them safe. And that's the picture we see from God. This is God's heart, honestly, for the world. You see, we're going to read all this really craziness that takes place, and it would it could easily be this place where we start to think, well, man, God's just brutal. He's just, why does he cause all this pain? Why does he allow all this pain that we read throughout these next few chapters? But what we see is God has given opportunity to everyone to be sealed, to have this, this covering over them in the midst of difficulty. So let's move on. So we see all these angels were standing around the throne, verse 11, and around the elders and the four living beings, and you started reading about that in the previous chapters. They fell before the throne with their faces to the ground and worshiped God. They sang, amen, blessings and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength belong to our God forever and ever, amen. Then one of the 24 elders asked me, this is to John, who are those who are clothed tonight? Where did they come from? And I said to him, sir, you're the one who knows. And he said to me, these are the ones who died in the great tribulation. They have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb and made them white. That's why they stand in front of God's throne and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will give them shelter. They will never again be hungry or thirsty. They will never again be scorched by the heat of the sun. For the Lamb on the throne will be their shepherd. 
He will lead them to springs of life-giving water, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. We see this kind of poetic language come out in this moment where this promise of being with our shepherd in the midst of everything is there. We, we've seen this description probably read before, that he wipes every tear from every eye. And we picture that as this, this forefront thing. But the truth is, I really think that there's promises amidst this for us right now. That there's a place where God comes into our life, even now, and seals us and is with us, and he's our shepherd. And this is a reminder chapter of this in the middle of some really difficult descriptions of what's going to happen or what is happening because remember if i if you go back to my first message on revelation this is not just a futuristic book it's really it's really about all times past present and the future and as we read the symbolism of these things there's there's truth that some of this is happening now currently amidst us and and you read through these next number of chapters and we're going to read about scorpions and locusts that look like scorpions and that have all these weird descriptions and the torture that they do and and these things of smoke coming up out of you know holes in the ground and and spreading out and torturing the world and a third of the world dying there's there's kind of this half truth that's taking place in the midst of these that yeah we look futuristically but also there's a current symbolism that can be true about our lives right now so let's, let's go on, jumping into Revelation 8 and 9. I'm not going to read all of this, but I want to read a, a little bit of it. So let's start in verse 1, chapter 8. It says, When the Lamb broke the seventh seal on the scroll, there was silence throughout heaven for about a half an hour. I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and they were given seven trumpets. And then another angel with gold incense burner came and stood at the altar, and a great amount of incense was given to him to mix with the prayers of God's people as an offering on the gold altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense mixed with the prayers of God's holy people ascended up to God from the altar where the angel had poured them out. The angel filled the incense burner with fire from the altar and threw it down upon the earth, and thunder crashed, lightning flashed, and there was terrible earthquake. And the seven angels with the seven trumpets prepared to blow their mighty blast. The first angel blew his trumpet, and hail and fire mixed with blood were thrown down on the earth. One third of the earth was set on fire, and one third of the trees were burned, and all the green trees, were, uh, all the green grass was burned. I want to jump down to another couple things. You're going to see a second angel blow, and all this stuff happens. It says, one third of all the things living in the sea died, and one third of all the ships on the sea were destroyed. And then a third angel and then in verse 11, it says, It was made one-third of the water bitter, and many people died from drinking this water. And then the fourth angel, and one-third of the day was dark, and one-third of the night. Then I looked and heard a single eagle crying. It flew through the air, terror, terror, to all who belong to this world because of what will happen when the last three angels blow their trumpets. So listen, let's stop there because it just gets really rough. <laughs> we see these trumpets blowing, and we see this, like, terrible stuff that happens after every one. And we see this number that I mentioned before, one-third, one-third, one-third. There's always this consequence of a third. And really, the one-third, every time, it's something dying, something being decimated, something being destroyed. And then we see this spot where this eagle flies, and he says, Woe or terror to all who belong 
to this world. Now, that, this, this language would have made sense to them because, you see, Paul's language, when we go back to Paul's letters and even Jesus' language, we start to see, I mean, even Paul uses this language. He says, we're not citizens of this world. You see, they would have understood the delineation that they, they would go, oh, wait, I don't belong to this world. This isn't my world, actually. I, I'm of a different kingdom. I'm of a different world. I'm of, I'm of his kingdom. And this one-third thing, there's this kind of decimation that takes place. Honestly, there's a lot of symbolism here. And we, what, what do we know where there's three? What's the biggest thing in Christianity that we think of when we think of three? The Trinity. What do we know that happens to one of the Trinity? He's decimated. He's destroyed. He's killed. He's beaten. He's hung on a cross. And yet we know that because he's not of this world, what happens to him? He comes back. Our Savior, Christ. There's this symbolism that they would have begun to understand, like, wait a second, even in this, even in this death that seems to gonna, that's going to reign over the earth from these trumpets blowing, from these things being released, there's this opportunity, if we're not of this world, there's this opportunity that God is going to restore something. You know, there's some people who really look at, you know, Revelation, and they think that there's this place where the earth is going to be destroyed and God's going to create something completely different or new. But that's not the case. We see that in these first 11, 12 chapters. But the rest of the book is actually going to start to show us that God is about restoration, not about replacing. And I, I don't know about you, but I like that idea that God's about restoration, not replacing. Why? Because I need to be restored, not replaced. You see, God's not like, oh, you're just a terrible person, I'm going to find someone who else is better. But sometimes I think that's the mindset we have with God. We look at Christianity and we're always trying to live up to some standard of living because we don't feel like we want to get discarded by God or we don't want to be, you know, all, all those things. We don't want to be left in a sense. Actually, just to be honest real quick, I hate the Left Behind series. It's entertainment. But the, the very words to me, I'm like, that's, that is so against the heart of God. He's not about leaving people behind. He's not about replacing people or replacing even the earth and creation in which he's created. Yes, he is about letting consequences come down on it so that it re returns to something new. I don't know about you, but I've had lots of consequences in my life. Have you? Unfortunately, we can read through all the scripture and never find where Jesus says, Oh, don't worry, nothing bad will ever happen no matter what you do. But what we see here is this, this kind of judgment that does come on the earth. And, and even as much as I'd hate to even use that word, there's this release of these terrible things. But the truth is, there's a place where consequences come from our decisions. And they rain down. And then in that moment, we get to have hope if we're not of this world. But if we are of this world, we probably ought to be a little scared. If my whole life is wrapped up in just what this world is about and not what God's kingdom is about, I probably should see these and be terrified. And that's why he says, terror, terror, terror to those who belong to this world. And, and really the purpose of this, and what's interesting, we'll get into chapter 9. Well, we'll get into chapter 9 right now. So it says, a fifth angel blows his trumpet at the beginning of chapter 9. 
And it says, A star falls to the earth from the sky, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. And he opened it. Smoke poured out as though from a huge furnace, and the sunlight and air turned dark from the smoke. Then locusts came from the smoke and descended on the earth, and they were given power like scorpions. They were told not to harm the grass or plants or trees, but only the people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were told not to kill them, but to torture them for five months with pain, like pain of a scorpion. In those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Let me jump down a number of passages to verse 11. It says, Their king is the angel from the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, Apollyon, the destroyer, destruction. The first terror is past, but look, two more terrors are coming. So we see this really creepy, crazy thing take place. It says the star falls from heaven, and it opens you know, the, the doorway to the bottomless pit, which... So much symbolism of hell and Hades. And, and actually, if you go back to the story of the Gadarene man, uh, this demoniac, this demon-possessed man comes, and, and, the, and the demons within the man are speaking. They say, are you here to send us to the abyss? It's the exact same words. So there's this place where it's like that's where all of hell resides, and now it's going to be opened up and allowed to roam the earth and torture people. But they have this kind of rule about it. Hey, you can, you can torture these people, but not the people who are sealed of God. But you can torture them, but you can't kill them. Now, we could look at this and be like, wow, that's demented. <laughs> that seems really weird. Why would, why would God allow this? And, and I want to just try to give you a new perspective. I, I, it's not an easy way to lighten this because it's not supposed to be lightened. But this is the perspective here. You see, actually, we're going to get to a, a, a part of this where it's talking about the, that it says the time has finished. And the re reality of that scripture, it's at the end of chapter 9, it's saying that, that the time is up to change your mind, is what, what it's talking about. And as a parent, I see my kids doing lots of stupid things. Do you have kids? I'm sure they're perfect. Mine aren't. And sometimes I'm like, listen, if you do that, you're going to get hurt. You shouldn't do that. And then guess what they do? They do it anyway. And usually, I mean, no joke, I will watch in a distance and go, I wonder, I'll see how that goes for them. And they get hurt and they skin their knee or they fall off the branch or whatever happens that I was trying to warn them of takes place. And then guess what happens? A light bulb went off. And Isaac or Emma or any of them is like, hey, you know what? I probably shouldn't do that. I'm like, yeah, that's what I said. This is how we have to have the picture of this kind of story. You see, God decides that and this is the problem with free will in the world. He decides, yes, as a parent and as a father, as God of this world, yeah, I want my kids to do what I want them to do, but I can't make them do it. And so sometimes he literally does sit back and he lets the consequences do their work for him. Because at the end of the day, we don't learn sometimes without them, don't we? If you've, if you've spent any time with me, 
in close relationship ever. Almost everyone that I know really well says, Greg, Greg says this a lot, we love to learn the hard way. That's what this story is. Humanity, we, we've somehow chosen the hard way over and over. And what I actually see when I read this is not a God who's unmerciful, but one who actually is merciful because he says you can't kill them. The, he's telling the consequences of life. Listen, you might hurt them. They might even want to die, but I'm not going to let them. Why? Because they need to learn and they got to have another chance. You see, that's the mercy of God. Even in the midst of all the evil that we see throughout the chapters, you see, we start to see that the, the world has turned ugly. I think if we look at the world, it's kind of an ugly place right now. But even in the midst of its ugliness, even in the midst of us not living the design of God over humanity, he says, no, 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 you can't kill them. This is also supposed to be reminiscent of a story. I'd, I'd love if someone was able to guess it. Anybody reminiscent of a story? Good one. My dad got it. Job. You see this story in, in the Old Testament where Job is this righteous man, and he's not of the world, but he's righteous. And, and there's this place where this super weird scene takes place in heaven where, where Satan says, oh, to God, he says to God, oh, that guy only serves you because life is good. And, and God's like, no, that's not true. And Satan's like, let me, let me show you. And God's like, all right, which I don't like this story just as much as you don't. And we see this place where, where Job doesn't retaliate against God. He doesn't curse him, right? And we see this thing play out. But then Job kind of, Job is this tool in the hand of God to actually defeat the enemy by saying, like, look. Look at how he reacted even in the midst of tribulation and pain and destruction. And then we come back to these story, this story here where these scorpions are, are released and all this stuff takes place. And we see that God actually is in his mercy allowing this opportunity for them to come back to him. This is, this is the heart of God actually. In the midst of pain and suffering and even us straying from him, he gives us this opportunity to come back. Now, I'll just be honest, I don't believe that this is a real story. <laughs> I don't believe there's going to be scorpions that look like this on the earth. But I do believe that the consequences and circumstances of life, because you see, the, the picture of this scorpion was meant to just terrify you. It was meant to be kind of like the illusion of the, the weirdest, craziest looking monster that ever was. And it's come to torture you. And I guess what I think that this could mean is just simply what life can look like for us sometimes. I think sometimes we are literally in a living hell. I think most of us have probably experienced that idea of life at times. You're looking around and it just seems like everything is ugly around you. It seems like life has come against you and it kind of looks like this locust. And even maybe you've entertained like I have in the past. It'd be better if I was dead. But yet God in his mercy is like, no, no. No, I'm not going to have you die in this. And then we get to the second part of chapter 9. We see another angel blow. And actually this is, 
an interesting part of the story, just kind of a little bit of background. We see the sixth angel blow, and then it, and it was releasing these four angels who were bound up at the great Euphrates rivers. I just want to say again, um, we read angels, and I think I said this in my first message, we read angels as this idea of the winged beings that do of all of God's work. That's not necessarily the case throughout all of Revelation. You see, the word angel is synonymous with the word messenger or one who delivers a message. And so I want us to just kind of hold that like these, it says these angels were bound up at the Euphrates River. Now, for us, that's a weird sounding thing, but actually in their day, they would have understood what it meant. You see, the Roman Empire took over a lot of the world in that time. And actually, most every previous empire that reigned in the Middle East in that region of the world, they always stopped at one place, the Euphrates River. Because the, beyond the Euphrates River was another empire. And quite, quite literally, they were always in a tension of war with this other empire. Regardless of what the empire was at that time, it seemed like those who were below the Euphrates River and those who were above the Euphrates River were always at a tension of war. And so whether they were literally in an actual battle or just in mind, there was this fear always that something was going to come from the Euphrates River to, to fight them. So they're getting this message and this symbolism that these angels, these messengers were going to be released from the Euphrates River that had been bound up. And it says they're with a great army. So this would have been like extremely fearful language for them. To us, to try to put in maybe an understanding, it'd be like, honestly, maybe our little bit of fear with Russia. It'd be as if, you know, maybe actually the Ukraine went just through this, right? So you've got the Ukraine and they've got their border and then Russia just starts to amass all of their troops. And what did they say? Oh, we're just, you know, we're practicing. And then eventually they invade. There's that, but that fear before, they were always seeing them there. This is kind of the fear in which they would have understood when they thought about the Euphrates River. That this army, this, this, this great mass would eventually attack us. And it says that, it says, I learned the size of their army, which was 200 million mounted troops. This is an interesting number. Because currently, at that time in the world, there wasn't even believed to be 200 million people. If you go back on, in just the study of the world and our population increase, and you go back to around 70, 80 AD, actually it was just around 100 AD that it tipped over 200, 230 million. So there's this place where they're literally using a number that's inconceivable to them. Like that's more than all the people in the world. And that's the army, the mounted troops that are going to come. It was this idea, this, this fear that was supposed to be there to say, listen, there's something that's coming that is literally insurmountable. And he says, and in my vision, verse 17, I saw the horses and the riders sitting on them. And it goes through kind of this description of them. Again, one third of all the people on earth were killed by these three plagues. And the plagues were the smoke that came out. Verse 19, their power was in their mouths and in their tails. And verse 20, I want to keep going. It says this. Now we get to verse 20, which is part of the whole point of 7, 8, and 9. Okay? It says, but the people who did not die in these plagues. So let's remember, who, who, who's dying in these plagues? The people who were of the world. 
right? Because if we go back to the end of chapter 8, we saw that the people of God who were sealed, that none of this was happening to them. But if you were of the world, these were the fears, the terrors that you, you should be looking out for. And there was these beasts, and there were these scorpion-like animals, and then there was this army that was coming, and one-third of the whole world was going to die. And then we get to this big, huge but. <laughs> At verse 20, it says, But the people who did not die in these plagues still refused to repent of their evil deeds and turn to God. They continued to worship Demons and idols made of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. Idols that can neither see, nor hear, nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, or their witchcraft, or their immorality, or their thefts. So you see, the whole point of these three chapters, and the whole point of this part of Revelation, the whole point that John, and even this message coming from Jesus to John, to deliver to the world, was, it's a warning there's this warning of this tribulation or this difficulty that was going to come on them if they don't follow the ways of God, if they don't become the servants of God, if they don't actually step into the design of humanity as they're called to, then these things were going to be released and, and literally able to torment them. Now again, whether it's literal or not, I think it's also symbolistic. That there's these things that come in our life against us especially when we're not following God, that seem like that seem like it's impossible to overcome. And that's the whole point. I've said many times in Christianity, the very first obstacle we have to get over is that we simply need Jesus. This whole chapter is meant to remind us in the world that the enemy against us is actually greater than us but not the God within us. That life is not actually meant to be lived in our own strength, in our own power, in our own will, but literally under the, under the understanding of following Jesus, then we're victorious people. Then we're people who are separated from all of this consequence and pain and difficulty. Why? Because we've fallen in line and followed the design that God had for us, which was to be followers of him. But yet what seems to take place is even amidst the greatest tragedies that they could imagine, that's what those chapters are about. It was like, it was just this imagery to say, man, can you even imagine anything worse than this? But even amidst imagine, not being able to imagine anything worse than the descriptions that John gives us in these chapters, it says the people refused to turn to God and repent. This goes back again to that, the imagery of the story with Pharaoh, right? We see Pharaoh. It says he hardens his heart. And there's this place where literally God gives him over to the hardening of his heart and he can't even change his mind. This is a warning, in a sense, to the world and to us that there's a place that even, even in the midst of all this, we're supposed to have these soft hearts. You know, I, I was reminded as I was reading this this week of Ezekiel 36. It's in your notes. And Ezekiel is giving this prophetic word to the people of God. And this is thousands of years now before. And he says this, this is God saying, I will give you a new heart. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. You know, the whole purpose of these chapters, and really the whole purpose of my message this morning is this, that it is easy for us to find ourselves with a hard heart. 
It's easy for us that even in the midst of life's circumstances, there's kind of two choices for us always. That when the consequences of life come against us, right? Because the truth is the consequences of life are things that take place because of decisions. Sometimes our decisions have consequences and we have to deal with those. But sometimes other people make decisions that have consequences on our life and we still have to deal with those. And there's a choice that in the midst of that, we can kind of harden ourselves and just try to, in a sense, make it through it, rejecting help from the outside. But then we become hard-hearted people. We become the people that it says, but they still refused. And this, this whole beginning part, actually, of Genesis 1 through chapters 12 is this Warning to the churches first. We see those seven letters that I talked about. And now this ridiculous warning of pain and, and difficulty and consequence to the people who are of the world. And he's trying to say, don't have a hard heart. Don't get stuck where you even refuse, even at the last, because time is running out, that you refuse to turn. And as I was preparing for this, message this week, I just really felt this is timely for all of us. Because at the end of the day, we don't know how much time we have. This last month, we've had a few funerals that I've had to do of people who we did not expect to pass. And in those moments, I always think, you just have no idea. And, and it's really an illusion if you think just because you follow Jesus, nothing bad's going to happen to you. I mean, simply, literally, you know, I could think, oh, well, I'm a pastor and God has all these great plans and, and things he's spoken in life. But I could walk out and get in my car and maybe because of the consequences of somebody else's decisions, I get in a car accident and die. Or maybe because of the stupidity of me liking to speed, I could die. And in a moment like that, it's over. And this is, what, this is what the book of Revelation is really about. It's about having this prepared heart for no matter what comes our way, that we're in this right place with him. And the warning to the churches was about them falling asleep and about them disregarding that and, and, and kind of about their, their, you know, kind of straying from their first love. And then this warning to the people who are not of God is this like, hey, turn now because the time is coming when it's going to be too late. And, and I just think, yeah, maybe this is for the future in a day when none of us are even around. Maybe it's going to play out in more literal ways, but I think it's also truth for our life in this moment, that there's a place where we could always think, oh, there's another day. There's another day for me to forgive that relational situation. There's another day for me to make this situation right. There's another day for me to ask for forgiveness from God. There's another day for me to kind of start to work on this addiction. There's another day for me to kind of get my heart in this right place. There's another day. And then sometimes there just isn't another day. Many of us who have ever lost a loved one unexpectedly often say, man, just one more minute. Just one more hug, one more touch. And this is really the heart of God throughout the book of Revelation. He's pleading with us before we are saying words like that. I just need one more moment. 
I just need one more minute. I just need one more day. And I think God wants to give us a, this responsive heart to him. Not to live in a place of like, oh, I could die at any moment. Like, I'm not talking about living some fear weird way here. But I am talking about having a reality in your life that says, I'm not going to dismiss the possibility if I'm not right with him. I'm not going to dismiss this moment because I think I've got more time. I'm going to go on living the way I want to live. I'm not going to refuse God's tugging on my heart because I really don't know. There's a place where we should have that mindset. Honestly, I have thoughts like this usually at the beginning and end of every day. I wake up and I just say, Jesus, I'm, I'm thankful for you. I need you today. And then usually at the end of the day when I've probably failed them a whole bunch of times, I'm like, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for, for loving me regardless of me being a poor leader and a poor this. And it's not that I wallow in that, but there's a place where I want to constantly recognize my deep and desperate need for a Savior. That's what this book is really about. It's, it's about reminding the church and, and, and showing the world who doesn't know him yet that there's a Savior who loves them. And we're going to get to a better part of Revelation. But in the midst of this moment, it's this fear and it's this consequence and it's this danger that's going to come if we don't respond. So today, I, I want to invite you to respond. Can we stand this morning? I'm going to pray and Justin's going to kind of finalize this with you, but I, I think we should take a moment today to let God search every one of our hearts. And I think you should even voice to yourself, God, do I have hard places? Maybe it's not a full hard heart, but maybe you've got some hard places in your heart. Places that you just don't want to deal with, but yet we just don't know what kind of time there really is. And in the kingdom of God, the time is always right now. He wants to move in our lives right now. He doesn't have to wait or want to wait. He wants to do something now within us. So God, I ask right now that every person in this room, every person watching online, that something would happen within us. God, even just a little bit of that fleshy feeling of our heart that we would kind of begin to put our walls down, even in this moment hearing these words, even some of the harshness of of what we read in Revelation, that we wouldn't read it that way and just kind of get harder, but God, that we would actually say, Jesus, I need you. So Father, I ask, come right now. Cause our hearts to be pulled on by you and let us respond in Jesus' name. Amen. Is God speaking to you? Yes, he is. You know, I have, I have a few voicemails and a few texts on my phone that I just want to put off till tomorrow. And I've been saying that for a couple days. I was with a, a, an old, I ran into an old friend on Friday night at the Messina football game. I haven't seen him in years. And even as Greg was, was speaking a few minutes ago, he reminded me, of my, fr my friend said to me, I haven't talked to my brother in two years. But I know we'll figure it out. But we don't know. We don't know what's around the corner. And so he's, he's waiting. He's like, we'll figure it out. We'll, we'll, I'll call him eventually someday. 
and I, I didn't say it then, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look him up when, I, when I'm done with this, and I'm going to say, hey, I'm going to try to communicate this to him. Maybe he's watching. I don't know. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And so whatever God is, is speaking to you right now, whatever you're feeling right now, whatever is pressing on you right now, are you going to have a soft heart to hear it and to respond? We want to. We want to. We want to sing. We want to open up um, a moment right now for for you to respond. And and there's people that would love to pray for you. Any any of our elders, our leaders, our small group leaders, or anybody that just wants to come up and 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 pray for each other. Want to give this moment, and so if if you are feeling led to respond, and that could be anything, that could be for the first time turning your heart towards Jesus. If that's you this morning, this is an incredible opportunity to just to look to God and to say, Jesus, I want what all these people are talking about. It's an opportunity to respond, or or maybe it's an opportunity to 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 take that step that you know you're supposed to be taking to make that phone call that you know you're supposed to make, to open up that part to God that you've been holding back, whatever it is. I just invite you in this moment to not rush out, but to, but to respond, even respond in coming up into this space and letting somebody pray. God, we thank you for this word. God, we thank you for your word. God, for your revelation that you gave to John to remind us to have a soft heart before you, to feel the pinch, the sting of whatever that thing is that's meant to to turn our hearts, that's meant to turn our minds, that's meant to turn our attention and not wait another day. Thank you for listening to NTC Messina's podcast. We hope you join us next week and have a blessed day.